the audience. I'd like to pose a question to the audience uh, for your, to hear your voice, and that is, are the events at Midstaff's Hospital a mirror on society rather than purely an example of bad healthcare? Discuss. We're going to start at the top, I think. Anyone ready with their voice? Everyone, I don't know about you, but everyone's terrified down here. <laughs> Sean, we have a man in a red jumper. Yes, I think they are. Um, I work in palliative care, although not a healthcare professional. Um, for 65 years, or for 60 years, we claimed we had a cradle-to-grave NHS, um, and the cradle end sucked up all the attention. Um, and the grave end uh, really didn't. And then in 2008, we had a, the first ever national end-of-life care strategy, and I, you know, that's something that I have to work with, because boss, my job is to try and you know, help implement that through the voluntary sector. And there's some words in that which I thought were incredibly powerful, which, uh, for me, we have to hold dear, which are something on the lines of that the way we care for dying people um, is a measure of society and a litmus test for our health and care services. Uh, and actually, we don't care sufficiently, because we're, not afraid, we're too afraid sometimes to talk about it, about the way that we care for dying people. Um, and we don't care, I think, sufficiently uh, for our older people, because too often we're content to see them cared for by some of the lowest paid and least well-trained people in the country, um, who, despite that, manage in some care homes to deliver fabulous care. So yeah, I do think um, that the events that we saw in mid-staff were things that we prepared to tolerate for too long. Uh, and I think it's fascinating that one of the people who blew the whistle has actually effectively been driven out of Stafford. Does anyone feel that's actually not true? That somehow this is a nonsense turning it around onto society when in fact health professionals clearly failed to care for patients? Are we deflecting this argument on Julie? Yes. Was that a yes to myself? Oh, no. Well, that's not interesting. I need someone to say yes. <laughs> oh, there is a yes. Here we go. Sorry, um, oh, sorry is it me? No, it's a microphone. I'll find Greg, go yeah, for it, yeah. and then Brenda afterwards. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Shall I... Brenda, yeah. are you... Okay. Fine. It seems to me that if it was a reflection of society as a whole, then the events that were present would be present throughout the NHS as a whole. The, uh, there's two things to be said about Stafford. A is they're un unbelievably awful. The other is I don't think we have good evidence that they're typical of the care that is presented throughout the NHS. And it seems to me that it's very important we don't regard it as a reflection of a society of whole, but indeed there are certain trends within society that would predispose to some very bad care in the NHS. And part of that is the devaluing of things that are intrinsically valuable, hands-on care, taking responsibility for others, and the overvaluing of things that are utterly valueless, um, celebrity culture being an obvious uh, example of that. So my answer to your question is yes-ish, but probably largely no, but we may be heading in the direction whereby the answer may become more and more yes. And so we need to reflect properly on, on mid-staffs. What's happened with the Francis report is they've described the symptoms, they have made a very superficial diagnosis and produced 240 recommendations-ish. 
And um, a report is always measured by a number of its recommendations that clutter up the lives of people who then have to act in the system work. So we, I don't think we've got a full diagnosis at the moment, but I would be very sorry if people felt that mid-staffs were a reflection of the NHS as a whole, and that, that is a reflection of society as a whole. Can I? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'd agree with that. But there, I think uh, mid-staffs, it was a number of individuals. There are a number of individuals in society who treat older people badly, who treat children badly. That doesn't reflect on society as a whole. And I think it comes back to two things. Um, I think I've forgotten, Julian said, um, you, you don't act badly because you've got a bad code of conduct. Um, and it's about trust. The more you trust people to behave appropriately and well, the more likely they are to do so. And I think that there's a culture of lack of trust rather than, uh, you know, in, in big organisations like the NHS, which is more and more ca the case than it used to be. Well, if you don't trust people from the start, then they're not going to live up to the... Well, they will. They'll live up to the trust you don't have in them. <laughs> Just while we're finding the next question, it's, uh, I'm right up at the top of the back. The, the point about palliative care, I think, was well made. And if we, if we haven't started the pot boiling with the mid-staffs question, then let's throw in the Liverpool Care Pathway into that as well. So the vilification of the Liverpool Care Pathway in the popular press has done more damage to end-of-life care than any other single action in the last decade. Discuss that also. So, so I'd just like to say that I think... So I was actually responding to, I think, what Brenda's, Brenda yes, said, which is, I think a big problem which we have is a kind of paradox about regulation and the kind of managerial culture which is developed in Britain and throughout the Western world, probably since the 1970s onwards, probably on the back of a sort of neoliberal culture in which money is the most valued, you know, that's commodity in which everything is, is measured. The paradox is, is that when we worry about things like this, what we do is we make more and more regulations. Uh, but the trouble is that the regulations actually, in many cases, have the completely opposite effect of what we want. They actually undermine trust because they're taking away from the individual, the kind of responsibility for delivering, you know, kind of ethically good care. That responsibility is put on the regulations themselves. I'm, I'm a researcher, I'm a clinical psychologist, and what I've seen in terms of all this is, in terms of scientific research on, in my case, mental illness, it's, almost, it's become almost impossible to do now because of the overzealous regulation of of, of research, it, it, it's, it's come to the point where, where it's, it's, it's actually damaging research. And there's a complete absence of trust. What happens is people, don't, people sit around and spend hours trying to imagine ways in which researchers can damage patients. And it, they, they put huge amounts of energy into it and then they design a regulation to stop it. And I, I suspect the same is true on the clinical side as well, that you've got exactly that sort of thing coming. So somehow we have to kind of get responsibility back to the individual. I don't know how we how we reverse this trend, but we need to somehow. Too much regulation. Back to the base.
One of the things that uh, is often overlooked is the environment in which people are working. And when something goes wrong, what frequently happens is that the press and politicians blame the individuals who have been working in that particular context or hospital or wherever. And what we hear time and time again is that there is reduced resources and yet increased expectations. And if a nurse, for example, is on her own in a very large ward with many patients, it's very difficult to give lots of minutes to each patient. And yet when one patient doesn't have the required number of minutes, that particular nurse is made the scapegoat for the problem. Whereas actually a large part of the problem is the reduced resources within which that particular person is working. And what's happening at the moment is the politicians are making a big, um, a, a big play for the fact that they want to reduce costs. What that means is less money, less resources, and yet at the very same time as that, they're demanding increased productivity and increased empathy and the other things. So I think that um, the original question was about is the events of Staffordshire reflected in the wider society and so far as society wants more stuff for less money and that's borne out by the politicians who are only reflecting society I think that is the root of a lot of the problem. I've, I've worked as a healthcare assistant with elderly people um, and as a junior doctor and as a GP and um, I don't think it's widely appreciated just what a burden it is emotionally and psychologically to be involved with deeply caring for people who are seriously sick, who are dying um, and who need and demand of you more than just the actions of a doctor or a nurse. Um, whether you like it or not, there is an effective empathic response to what happens when you're looking after people like that. And in that respect, that isn't something that normal people have to do day in, day out, over and over again. And if you want, if you, if you want your healthcare professionals to act at that level, they need to be treated with a particular kind of care and compassion and nurturing that just isn't the same as somebody performing technical tasks. And unfortunately, that is how we've treated staff. And we've seen what can happen um, at its worst. And if we want to change that, then we need to recognise just how much medical staff themselves need to be protected in order to better care for their patients. Doctors uh, and nurses were only ever as good as the system that we're working in. And what Francis made very clear about mid-staffs was that this was a system that was being designed for the marketplace. 
So the system that had been put in was around performance targets and productivity and finances. And he said that as a result of that, the eye was taken off the ball, i.e. patients. And so what we had was a system in which extraordinary institutional violence was taking place, structural violence, which actually had then an impact on all the staff and the patients in turn. And I think really we need to understand the true story of mid-staffs. It was not individuals' loss of empathy and respect, although that happened. It was what was happening within the institution. And the sad thing about mid-staffs is that's now being replicated right across the country with a constant um, focus on getting the whole system ready for the marketplace and all the violence that will ensue. Well, so, can, can I just respond to that a bit? Because I think that is absolutely true. But we are the health system in this room, in the country. And I wonder where the expectations that were really eloquently articulated, the rising expectations and the dissonance between what we can deliver and what the expectations are. Where do those expectations come from? And if the direction of travel is driving us towards that... Um, culture within healthcare that's just been well described and had gone wrong in mid-staffs. Surely everybody in this room and everybody in the country has the power within their hands to alter that and change it and put it back on track. How are we going to do that? And what are those ambivalences? On the one hand, as a society, worrying about the livable care pathway, for example, yet also being unsettled by um, our inability to choose a time and place of death, wanting good care, similarly wanting drugs at great costs. How do we make it, you know, how do these discussions happen in a way that resolves some of these very difficult pulls in different directions? Because on the Today programme and in the House of Commons, they will be delivered with rhetoric, which doesn't always help us reach some kind of view of what the sensible middle ground is. Because, you know, as the gentleman over there said, pulled in all of those directions, it becomes untenable for individuals to deliver care. Any ideas? We're not leaving, the doors are locked. <laughs> until we sort this out. Um, yeah, oh, here we go. Has anyone got a microphone? Just, oh, there's all sorts of hands now that I threatened the doors would be locked. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. I think one of the questions to ask is why, given all the pressures in so many different healthcare communities, has it been Stafford and not everywhere? And it quite clearly hasn't been everywhere. So what is it about lots of places that enable you to still be able to deliver, still be able to, every penny we spend is a taxpayer's pound that they've you know, earned. We've got to be really clear about where we spend our money. But why is it in some situations that can be delivered still in a very humane environment? <clears throat> and for me, it's about culture and why are some cultures allowed to be created? And that's about leadership. And I think I reference back to Professor Kneebone's um, very interesting session this morning about leadership in the surgical team in an operating room. It's about leadership um, in teams. And I think there's a real challenge now that we have multidisciplinary teams. There's a, a challenge and a tension with leadership and responsibility. But you can quite clearly see a ward where there's strong leadership, where things, um, 
are not allowed to happen where, where respect and is still maintained, even though it's busy, especially when it's busy. And that has to be about leadership from the medical team, the nursing team, um, and people challenging the leadership and saying, actually, that's, that's not acceptable. Only when you've got that can you maintain the culture that helps deliver safe patient care and, and care with dignity. And I think you know, throwing that question back to how, how we're going to maintain that is about making sure that our leaders are, you know, that we are the leaders and that our leaders are, are strong and, and, and are very vocal in challenging when we see times where resources are really, really having an impact on patient, patient care, not just making it a bit uncomfortable for us, but stopping us from delivering humane care. Thank you. I'm an end-of-life care facilitator and an art psychotherapist. Um, just want to pick up on a few things, going back to end-of-life care and the strategy, which did call for a, a cultural shift in, in behaviour in the workplace. And also, with regard to LCP, undoubtedly there were problems, undoubtedly it was poorly used, but I just fear we're being driven back into the dark ages and um, that that is sad. As, as a junior nurse, I remember attending to a patient who no one asked, did they want pain relief, even though she was dying of cancer? And I think that's the, the, the gap that we're falling into again. I do think we have a much bigger problem, and probably most of us know this in theory, but it is in practice of the taboo around death. And that is, I think, where we need to tackle education with um, nursing and medical students, um, with reflective practice, getting people to think about their own beliefs about death and dying and moving forward in that way. Astonish you really that we have uh, imaging and microscopy that can reach into the depths of biology, yet the very brazen and obvious fact of our mortality is completely elusive to us and makes us come up with policies that allow us not to care well for people who are dying. Yeah. That must be astonishing as an end-of-life care facilitator. Yeah, it is. Well, even in daily practice, when I ask people how many people in the room have made a will, you know, it's surprisingly few. But at least I'm, I'm fortunate I get the opportunity to ask the question <laughs> and to provoke homework. <laughs> so, um, yeah. We have um, some questions down here. Uh, there's no way I'm going to make it down there, so I'm going to just pass this down. Hi, yeah. Um, I'm not a health professional. Uh, I work a lot more with the uh, the politicians, so I'm going to I'm bound to be very unpopular in this group. Um, but I do think they're a missing voice here. I mean, the political framework, and I think I'm not going to try and defend decisions, but I'm going to try my best to explain a framework which they look at these issues from. And I think it's wrong to assume that politicians don't have sympathy, they don't have empathy, they don't want um, uh, the healthcare professions to be very patient-focused. Many of them do, many of them don't, but many of them do. But it all comes down to the question Sean asked when he was chairing his session, which is, if I've got £150,000, do I buy an oncologist or do I buy three um, uh, music therapists? And that is the question they have to answer on a macro level. There is a limited amount of money 
and they have to make a choice of priorities and allocations, and that's a difficult thing. So the, the pressures that you guys are feeling in your profession are much the same as many others are feeling in uh, other professions, and indeed, I'm sure most, most of you will recognise it's also the same pressure and same concern you've had for 30, 40 years. So it's going to keep on, and until you have an answer to what are you going to do with £150,000, I'm not sure you're going to be able to have the right kind of dialogue to get back to the politicians. Could do with a bit of double bass, though. Definitely. Go. Everyone's nice and relaxed now. <laughs> Someone down here just said society and whispered it. And I'm going to do that whole teacher thing saying, if you've got something to say. Uh, I just think it's a, a big question to leave to doctors um, and, and health professionals and say it's up to them what they spend the money on because society as a whole needs this, dis needs this discussion. Because we now operate on people... Uh, to an age that we never did before and it costs a huge amount of money and we need to decide as a society whether we went, where we want to spend the money. I can't see that that is something just doctors on their own can decide. Thank you. I think the reason that there is um, a lot of discontent in this room in terms of not being able to practice as you want to practice. I'm not a medic. But I think it's a very clear and easy question to answer as to why. It's because the politicians, to pick up on what the gentleman was saying there about trying to explain what politicians are about, the politicians were central in setting up the health service. They were set up according to certain values by, I have to say, a Labour government. I'm not an apologist for a Labour government, but they were set up at a time when this country was recovering from huge stress of the Second World War, when resources were very limited. But nevertheless, the stricken country found enough money to set up what, in my view, is one of the greatest institutions this country has ever come up with. It was set up according to values of commonality, of caring for each other, of shared risk being the only real way to deal with some of the huge problems in society. What could be greater uh, in terms of worry, in terms of uncertainty, than illness? We none of us know what's going to happen when we step outside of this door. We took away the greatest worry you can have about that, which is, how can I cope with it? Who will look after me? Will the resources be there? Because we all pay for it all together. We can't do much more than that, because what befalls us is, you know, many and varied awful things. 
But what we have to know nowadays is that this government are deliberately, and I say deliberately, dismantling this in the name of profit. My husband... Can, this is not a plug for his book, NHS SOS, the, the profits go to KOMP, keep our NHS public. But it's no wonder that the tensions are there being felt by every professional. The professionals in the health service also work according to those values. They're not there for profit, they're there for caring. Yes, it gets cocked up as every big organisation gets cocked up, but it is still the best answer to the problems. We have got to defend this. We have the values of profit, the values of the market are different. They don't sit equally on what our wonderful NHS is. And unless we get out there and defend it, if necessary, by chaining ourselves to the railings, by occupying our hospitals, it's our hospitals, it's our NHS built with our money. And if you don't look out, they're going to take it from us. Hello, I'm a retired GP and I now work in community development and I do that because I believe the, the common thread here is community and the last speaker in a way was touching on that. Um, the big community, this is the towns and villages we live in, neighbourhoods, but also the community within a hospital depends on people caring for and about one another. And this is going wrong all over the place. And I think that when a hospital goes wrong, it's going wrong because it's becoming a kind of microcosm of the wider community where individuals are isolated and there isn't a sense of caring. People will naturally care for one another when they're given encouragement and an opportunity to do so. That does need leadership. Um, but it also needs for people to be connected with one another. And to be connected, you have to have time. You have to be able to speak and comfort one another. If we did that, there would be less illness. There's no doubt about that. If we did it in our hospital, there would be more loving care and more effective care. So that, in a way, for me, is the thread that connects this. As long as we think about individuals and blame, we won't get to the answer. No hands? One last hand. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. But when the NHS was set up, it was meant to be self-limiting. So if the pot of money is running out, maybe a private healthcare system would create more money, more time for patients and a better experience for patients. <laughs> Sorry. Can anyone say why not? Why not? Why not? There's a few advocates here. I'm, I'm going to be run out of the building. Um, 
I don't know how many people here come from a business background. I do. I spent 26 years in business. I've also worked for a co-op and a local authority and the civil service and several charities. The worst organisation I've worked for was the charity. The second worst was the co-op. The businesses I worked for were all very ethical, had strong values, cared for their customers. I would far rather have a business than a mid-staffs mid -staffs hospital looking after my care. Come back. Some, just a couple of hands just here at the back. Sean, have you got any hands? Oh, someone's telling me off. It's a familiar sound. Uh, my name is Roger Taylor, and, and uh, to outdo the earlier speaker in unpopularity, my background is in journalism and the media. Um, but I, I do think that the point that was made about leadership and culture is the really crucial one. When you look at where organisations provide fantastic care, it is because of the culture and the values of that organisation. And you do not see that either exclusively in the NHS. You see it in you know, Macmillan Cancer Care. You see it in Turning Point. You see... And saying about talking about mid-staffs, um, <clears throat> the culture of mid-staffs was appalling. And you go to some NHS hospitals and you can see a really poor culture. But you go to other NHS organisations and you find an absolutely fantastic culture. So I don't think the, the, the NHS as a, as a structure is any guarantee of the, the values that we need in delivering care. I just want to point out, go back to the point about how you're going to spend £150,000 because although society can set some parameters, what happened at mid-staffs was if the medical profession does not take a really strong leadership in terms of saying where money is well spent and where it isn't, that is the gap that allows the politicians to come in and the managers to start dictating how everything's going to be done because that gives them the room to say, we're going to look after the money, we're now going to tell you what to do. And that is what happened in mid-staffs and the results are completely catastrophic. Just to, to add a bit of context to that, I, I'm not sure it's just the medical profession that should be making that decision. I think it's the healthcare profession globally. Yep. Um, I'm an obstetrician. Um, I, it was just really a comment on one of the themes that's run through the day, which is that um, we've talked about the tension between those things we can really understand and, and grasp and, and kind of measure, and then those things that we can't. And certainly when we were talking about poetry, it, there was an acceptance that it was something elusive that we couldn't quite grab hold of, but very valuable. And one of the dangers, obviously, of market forces is that when people are nervous and they sit with that discomfort of something that they can't quite measure, then we turn to things we can be more sure of, which may be things that we can measure, but things that are less valuable. So I think one of the dangers of our society at large is that we're in our discomfort of things, turning to things that we can measure and calculate and, and put money to, and turning away from the things that are potentially more valuable, but leave us with some discomfort in trying to define them. And uh, that's possibly the tension we need to address here. Last, last comment from you. I'd like to say something that I think Sean might disagree with me. Um, I listened to everyone talking about doctors making decisions about where money is spent. In my experience, those decisions have been taken out of the hands of doctors and we don't have any responsibility for that anymore. Um, in the organisation I work for, the board has one practising doctor on it. Um, 
and the remainder of the board, including non-execs, don't come, particularly come from a healthcare background. If we worked for a business, BP, the geologists and engineers would be running, the best geologists, the best engineers. To me, the health service has lost its management uh, because the best doctors, I don't count myself amongst them, uh, should be at least, at least to come back to the theme of this meeting, have a voice at that level.